Jewish audio on Chabad.org. So just a quick refresher, so everybody knows what we're doing now. Mordechai has discovered the full uh, length and breadth of the story. He doesn't hear what everybody else hears. He hears from Elio Hanavi. He knows that the Jewish people are in big trouble. This is not simply something superficial. This is stemming from a, a major breakdown in the spiritual system, if you will. And Almighty God himself has decreed Kaloya genocide for the Jewish people. But at the same time, you'll remember that there's hope. That Moshe Rabbeinu said, as long as I have a man on the ground, I can pray, I can do things. Mordechai is the man. We also talked about Mordechai meeting those three children. And that the conversation he has with these children effectively forms what's called a nevuah tano, a minor prophecy. So now Mordechai knows that he can be successful. He knows that we can overcome. What do you do now? What do you do? So the first thing is to galvanize the people. He has to wake up the people, and he has to get them to mass around them and to be ready to listen to him. That's the first thing he has to do. So, as we learned in the previous class, Mordechai did something outrageous. And only by behaving outrageously was he able to get everybody's attention. He tore his clothes off, he put on uh, garbage bags, and he went wailing and screaming in the street like a lunatic. So everybody came running around him to listen to what he had to say. What's the next thing Mordechai needs to do? The next thing is he needs to get to Esther. Right? So once he's got the Jewish people listening to him, once he has stimulated tshuva, a wave of renewal, a rehabilitation on behalf of the Jewish people, now what's needed is to set something into motion. And Esther has to know that this is really serious. Now here's the problem. Mordechai needs to impress upon Esther how serious the situation is, number one. Number two, nobody really knows that Mordechai and Esther are related. This is all clandestine. So if Mordechai is just going to come make an appointment in the palace, all of a sudden Haman's going to find out. And he's going to take steps to block what Mordechai wants to start to put into place. So what does he do? Well, this is where we kind of left off. In last, in last class we said Mordechai came all the way up till the palace compound. Just before, the area just before, the plaza before, the palace compound. We're at chapter 4. And today's studying is going to pick up with verse 4. Megillah 4.4. Pedig Dalit. Megillah Sester. Pedig Dalit. Yes. It's usually going to open to the last page you're on. So Mordechai comes to this area, but he can't go further. He can't penetrate the, the, the royal compound itself, even though Mordechai, I'm sure, had ID, and he was able to enter the royal compound as a senator, as a parliamentarian. Mordechai does not actually go in. Why doesn't he go in? We discussed this, because he's dressed inappropriately. And the fact that one dresses in a manner that seems to express mourning for the dead king can earn you royal ire, and you may have your head handed to you. Vashti had her head handed to her for much less. Now, the normal or natural uh, fall of cadence of the verses should have been that Mordechai comes to Shar HaMelech and then he manages to communicate with Esther or manages to find a way to send Esther a message. But that's not what happens. In the order of the Megillah, first we go to Pasuk Gimel. Medina, Medina, and all the different provinces... That everybody finds out what's going on. There's a tremendous mourning. There's fasting and sackcloth. All of this is dakiyat shuva. All of this is an awakening, a spiritual awakening on behalf of the Jewish people. After there's a spiritual awakening on behalf of the Jewish people, now Mordechai can go to Esther. 
but he's got a problem. So what happens is that Mordechai came up till the palace compound. He doesn't enter the area of the royal buildings. But he hangs around there. And because he hangs around there, he knows he's going to be noticed. Rabbis with the torn clothes off, wearing garbage bags and screaming and yelling, usually attract a little bit of attention. <laughs> because they don't do that. And especially when he's a chief rabbi and he's a senator. So eventually, he knows it's going to get to Esther. Well, it works like a charm. Exactly as he thought and hoped, Esther does find the message. And this brings us up to verse 4, which we're going to study in great detail today. Because on the surface, verse 4 seems very simple, but that is deceptive. It's not simple at all. It's extremely layered and extremely complex pasuk. Let's read it simply. Vatavoyna spelled with the, with, the, with the extra yud, which we don't pronounce, Vatavoyna noores Esther, the maidens of Esther, the Sarisah, we'll translate that as chamberlains, we'll talk about that in a minute, what it is. Vayagidula, and they told her, they said, oh, this Mordechai guy, he must have lost his marbles. He's, he's, his clothing is torn off and he's wearing garbage bags, and he's, he's wailing. The king became extremely distressed, the queen became extremely upset. She sent for clothes, sent clothes to get him dressed, and to take off his sackcloth, he refused. Very simple pasuk. She found out that he's running around like a crazy man. She felt very bad. She sent him some clothes. And surprisingly, he said, no, I don't want to wear the clothes. Well, let me ask you a bunch of questions here. First of all, who, who cares who told Esther? What's the difference if it was Naores, if it was the maidens of Esther, or Sarisad, the chamberlains? Who cares? Write the Pasuk simple. Vayagidula Esther. Who told Esther? I don't care who told Esther. <laughs> the, the, the scripture is full of things like that. There are all these cameo players. People who said something. There's, there's one cameo in the Torah that Rashi discusses, like when they came and they told Yosef that Hine Avicha Chole, your father is sick. And Rashi says, who was it? So he says, one simple meaning. Somebody came and told. But then he says, no, there's really a deeper meaning. This is Ephraim who was always spending time with Yaakov. In other words, the idea that there's a cameo in the, in the Bible, an unknown figure of somebody who walked around a few thousand years ago who said a few words, that was the whole speaking part, a few words. He said a few words and that's it. Big deal. There's an extra in the movie. Nobody knows who the extras are. You know who the main actors are. The main actors are larger than life people. Mordechai lives on forever. Esther lives on forever. They have a, a representation within the gestalt of, of, of the spiritual perspective of things. Every one of us can behave like Esther. Every one of us has a little Mordechai inside of him, etc., etc. But the guy who told Esther or the woman who told Esther, whatever, somebody said. That's just a detail. That's just a little bit of cement between the bricks. Not only we hear who told Esther, Vatavoyna Naores Esther, Visariseha. Not only her maidens came, the chamberlains came too. Wow, that's so cool. So not only the maidens told her, but the chamberlains told her. What if the milkman would have told her? That wouldn't be good. And what if the palace guard would tell her? This is one very big question. The second very big question is, Vatishalchal Hamalka Ma'oid. The queen became extremely distressed. Why did she become extremely distressed? So Mordechai is acting strange. You know, people act strange sometimes. So just find out what's going on, that's all. Maybe he needs some Prozac. <laughs> so send him a prescription. 
Like, what's the big deal? It's not just Vatischalcha or Malka Ma'id. Ibn Ezra says that the only other verse in the Torah that has a similar word is a verse which is found in the Az Yashir that talks about the response of the Canaanite nations when the Israelites came out of Israel and the sea split open. Out of Egypt. So the Canaanite nations heard about this. And what was the Canaanite response? It says, Chil Achaz Yeshve Palashas. The dwellers of Philistine, nothing to do with Palestine. The dwellers of Philistine, which is a part of Eretz Yisrael, we called Canaan at the time, were gripped with terror. Wow. The only kindred verse in the entire scripture between this business of that Esther became very distressed is a nation who heard that the jig is up. That the Jewish people are coming back to their homeland. And when the Jewish people come back to Canaan, it's not going to be Canaan anymore. And that the Canaanite nations, who are not the indigenous peoples of that land, by the way, who had routed the indigenous peoples at the same time that Avraham Avinu came, who was a Semite, who was from Shem, and that piece of the Middle East belonged to the Shemites, to the Shem family. And that's why Noah, who was the descendant of Shem, who was the father of Shem, pardon me, lived over there. And Shem lived with his father in a city called Shalem, or Salem, as the Christians call it. A little more familiar to them. Malki Tzedek, Shem ben Noach. So Shem's family is living there. And Shem's descendants live there. And the group of people from Cham, which were an African group, came in and they invaded the land of Canaan. So the Canaanite peoples were actually, were African indigenous peoples. They're from the people of Cham. They were like Egyptians, Sudanese, Algerians, using modern terminology. They didn't even belong over there. And they came the same time as Avram, who was a great-grandson of Shem. And they knew when Yaakov Avinu and his family left, that they're coming back home. By the way, when they came to bury Yaakov, if you look at the verses very carefully there, it says a, a, an expeditionary force, a military force, came to engage them in battle. Because they heard the Jews are coming. They said, oh, the Jews are coming back. Let's stop them. They don't want the Jews to come back. They said, don't worry. We're just here for a funeral. Oh, in that case, fine. We can, we can join the funeral procession. It says they took off their crowns. They put their crowns on Yaakov Avinu's coffin and was surrounded with crowns. They saw Yosef's crown. They're very impressed. They put the crowns over there. So they were always afraid that this beautiful land of theirs is not really theirs and that the real inhabitants are coming home to get it. What are the real inhabitants? The Jewish people. And now they hear that these Jewish people have left Mitzrayim that the sea opened and all of Egypt, which was the superpower of the day, is gone. Did they stand a chance? Of course not. So what, what kind of terror gripped them? Mortal terror. It's finished. Their land will be destroyed. Their homes for the last 200 years will no longer be their homes. Now, can you compare that to the feeling that Esther experienced when Mordechai cracked up? She doesn't know what happened. He's acting strangely. He's acting out. A lot of pressures. Was no fun being a rabbi. Cracked up. Okay, never. Maybe he just needs a little vacation. Yes. Isn't that strange already that somebody came and tell her? Because did they know that she was able to... Excellent question. Very good question, Tali. So the, it's a very good question. Your question is, why would he even tell her about Mardachai? So first of all, didn't you ever hear as a national inquirer? <laughs> <laughs> this was news. Nobody really liked the Jews. And the rabbi is acting so compromised and foolish. 
So they said, oh, did you hear what happened? Ha! The rabbi cracked up. Yeah, he's running around half naked and he's screaming in the street that he's wearing garbage bags. Oh, okay, fine. That's the simple answer. But you should know the Mepharshim say that it was well known for the palace insiders that Esther had a certain fondness for Mordechai. They knew, they knew that there was the Mordechai, she was always worried about Mordechai. They knew that Mordechai, this one parliamentarian, was worried about her. They knew there was some kind of connection. This is why Mordechai has to be so careful. Because you know how it is. There used to be a column in one of the newspapers called Washington Whispers. It's always something going on. Everybody always knows about everybody. Especially when you're living in, a, in the public arena, living in a royal compound. I said the National Enquirer is a joke, but I'm not joking, because that's just the, the modern example of, of the same anthropological syndrome. And the truth is, I don't even know, today it would just be Facebook. Right? Everybody would be tweeting. That's what it means. So it's the equivalent. So those days, he used word of mouth. Pretty effective, by the way. Same, same idea. People are talking about it. A celebrity. People talk about a celebrity. Is it rumors about the celebrity, rumors about the king, rumors about the queen. It's not that different than with the, with the royal family in England. A rumor here, a rumor there. It's normal. So, so that's why they would have told the queen. But anyway, what's the difference? Why? They told the queen. But this you know what the Gemara in Megillah says? The Gemara in Megillah says that Esther unnaturally suddenly had a period, a very heavy period. She went into massive meltdown. That's not normal. People get very bad news and the period doesn't start all of a sudden. The period usually is regulated. The body knows when it has to do what it has to do. This brought on a period. And there's another opinion of the Gemara that Abanan say, no, 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 she didn't have a period. She had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Esther was pregnant with Achishverosh's child. And when she heard this news, she went into premature labor and miscarried the baby. You know what it takes to induce a miscarriage? The whole pussy makes no sense. Esther heard some people talking that Mordechai had a minor breakdown. She had a miscarriage in that? People find that, that their parents die, they don't have a miscarriage. What's going on over here? So what does she do? She sends him clothes. Really? How about sending a doctor? An ambulance? A shrink? Is that the issue? She's dealing with the symptoms. He walks around, oh, he must, he doesn't have any clothes, his clothes are torn. He must have put on a garbage bag because he has no clothes. I'll send him clothes. If he murder, I can't go home and get clothes. He lived in a refrigerator box. He only had one set of clothes. What's she sending him clothes for? She sends clothes, and to take off the sackcloth. Why are you both necessary? If you're worried about the torn clothes, you send clothes. What's with the business? I could go on, but you get, you see what I'm saying? This Pasuk seems like so simple. Even listening, sitting in Shul and hearing them read this Pasuk, if you could hear the Megillah, right, with the kids around you screaming. And you heard this Pasuk so many times. Whatever, it's a Pasuk, you know. Like a, and I said, like, let's, say, let's like actually stop and think. What do we just read over here? This makes no sense. So first of all, Pasuk Gimel interjects also a little strange. That I explained. Pasuk Gimel interjects because that's the point. Yes, you should know that Mordechai only comes, this is choreographed, he only comes to Esther. He only makes sure to be visible enough for Esther to hear the news only after he knows that he has already accomplished what he wanted amongst the Jewish people. Alright, so who, who, who were these maidens? Let's start with there. That's, I think that's, that's important to understand. That since the Megillah makes an issue of Na'ori Seha and Sari Seha, that obviously this is part of the story. These are not cameos. These are real people. We don't need to know their names, but we need to know what their position was. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. 
I don't know. So let's see what the Mepharshim say. All right. So the first thing is, Esther used to have a different uh, young woman who would come and be her personal assistant. Not different than sometimes like, um, wives of presidents and prime ministers have a personal assistant. Somebody's there. And a personal assistant job for one of these people is a very difficult job because they have appearances to make. I'm sure estimate appearances, royal appearances. She cut ribbons. She kissed babies. She visited nursery schools. She, you know, she, she did whatever a queen does. She had duties. She had royal duties. So she had a, per, a personal assistant. And the truth is that these personal assistants live under an enormous amount of pressure. Even before the age of social media, every single word of one of these people is watched, and it's reported, and it's talked about. And everything has to be couched a certain way. And you have to make sure that the makeup looks a certain way, and that the lighting is a certain way, that the wardrobe is appropriate for the... It's a, it's, it's a, it's a big job. These people get managed. They don't live like their own life. So Esther actually had seven different women, seven different young girls. Each one had a 24-hour job. For those 24 hours, she was in charge of the Queen's Affairs, chief of staff. What was one of the reasons Esther had seven women? Because she lived a very strange life in the palace where she didn't even have calendars, she didn't have clocks. Everything was managed by everybody else. But she needed to be clear when Shabbos was. So just to keep her mind clear. So what she had is, she had a girl named Yom Rishon, a girl named Yom Sheni, a girl named Yom Shlish. I don't know if she called him that, but that's, that was the... She knew, this, this woman is Tuesday, this woman is Wednesday. And she had a girl named Shabbos. When, when Shabbos came, and Friday came, and Friday left, and Shabbos arrived, she knew that's how she kept time, and she was always very careful about Shabbos. She never made any mistakes. She also didn't have to explain to seven different personal assistants what she does or doesn't do on the seventh day. So she talked just to the personal assistant of Shabbos, and Shabbos knew what Shabbos' job is. And Shabbos had to keep, her, keep quiet. These people don't break silence. Every one of them is, is confidential. And if Shabbos talks to Wednesday, she'll get in trouble. And Shabbos didn't even know Wednesday, necessarily. So Shabbos doesn't know Wednesday, and Wednesday doesn't know Tuesday. So nobody knows each other. Everybody does their job, and everybody does what they have to do on their particular day. And Esther's keeping a total observant lifestyle, and, and she has her secret intact. One of the things that all of these girls must have known is that Esther has a special relationship with this parliamentarian named Mordechai. He's worried about her always. He cares about her. She cares about him. She knew there was something there. I don't know if there was suspicious. Something, something there. So all of a sudden, one day, all seven maidens come to Esther at the same time. This was like freaky. All seven? And they all came with the same reason. Do you know what we just saw? You know that guy, Mordechai, that senator? You know that chief rabbi, Jew guy who was in the parliament? He's, he lost his marbles. He tore his clothes off. He's wearing garbage bags. And he's wailing. So the, some of the Mepharshim say, Esther actually... He didn't, he didn't, she didn't believe them. She thought, well, they're just being silly. Yes, if Lekach says she didn't believe them. They can't be. So she called the Chamberlains. Who are these Chamberlains? So we can't know with absolute certainty if this is the case with all the Chamberlains, but the way it's spelled, the word Saris is spelled not with a sin, which is usually the way we spell a minister or a person who's involved in nobility, but it's spelled with a Samach. A Sar is with a sin. This is always spelled with a Samach. Now, a Saris with a samach usually means a person who is castrated. That's what it means. And this would be translated in English as a eunuch. And many Megillah's English translations actually translate it as eunuchs. What was a eunuch? All right, so you were this uh, big king, and you had a harem. By the way, Ahasuerus had a harem. All those girls we interviewed for that one-night interview to see if they could, you know, make dinner well and clean the house. I don't know what they tell kids when you teach the Megillah. <laughs> 
girl had to come to Achashverosh and say, he's going to see if he's a queen. You know? Once upon a time, kids were simple. I don't know if they buy it anymore, but whatever we used to know, okay? <laughs> this, 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 this sexual deviant, this lunatic Meshuggah who pushed this guy is, is demented. Every night he's with somebody else. But these girls, when they finished with that uh, getting interviewed, they never went home. That was finished. That's it. They wanted to be the queen. But once you were with the king, you couldn't go afterwards and talk to the tabloids about it. You stayed in the harem. And by the way, Achashverosh was a, a pervert. He, had, he didn't stick with Esther. Esther was the queen, but he was busy. He has, uh, Achashverosh kept himself busy. He's a very busy man. Okay. So this busy guy had a harem. Now who is going to protect the harem? Usually, women are the fairer gender and the weaker gender. So you need to have a man who's going to protect you. No, the Achashverosh is going to trust a man in a harem like this? All these young girls, they haven't seen a guy because Achashverosh has been with them for years and there's this uh, handsome chamberlain hanging around there. You're asking for trouble. So what did they do? What did they do? How did they, all these sheikhs, these Arab sheikhs, how did they control the Arabs? This was, by the way, till like a few decades ago. Could be even still till, till, till today. So, I mean, the easy thing somebody would say in modern day and age is find a guy who has different orientation. Okay. <laughs> how do you know? Achashverosh, this one very simple. It wasn't his idea. This was very common in the old days. They had eunuchs. What did they do? They castrated these men. So finished. They had nothing to worry about anymore. And these guys would be treated wonderfully. They had a very, very enjoyable life with one little exception. Except for a rearrangement, a, real, a, wheel, a wheel realignment. Other than that, everything was fine. And they, they had luxury and they had wealth and they lived a good life and they had no worries and no stress and no anxiety. And anyway, some of these men didn't get a chance to choose. If Achashverosh decided, or the king decided, you are a eunuch, you were a eunuch. And because if you weren't a eunuch, you'd be a headless horseman. It was like one or the other. So either you lose your head, or you lose your masculinity. So these eunuchs were hanging around the palace. He had a whole bunch of them. He had them everywhere. They didn't have to worry about it. They would go in, they would come, they would go. This is the way it was. So there's, there's one opinion, one of the Mepharshim say, that there were seven, these seven maidens, and these seven maidens, they were also shadowed. Achashverosh didn't want any you know, stories going on. Couldn't have trouble in the, in the palace. And they needed, they needed protectors. Lawless people always. So the seven maidens were shadowed by three eunuchs. On average, every eunuch had to take care of, you know, two, one, one, one or two women that he was responsible for. Now, the... the, the um, Yes, if Lekach says something very interesting. He says, take a look. Nobody really talks about this. It says, Vatvayena. We read it, Vatvayena. But there's a Yud. Look inside. In, in the first word of Pasuk Dalet, there's an extra Yud there. So Yes, if Lekach says, yeah, there's an extra Yud, that's because there were seven maidens and three chamberlains, or eunuchs. No, you do the math. How many people is that? That's ten. Seven and three is ten. Now we see, Vatavoyna, who came? They all came. They all came at the same time. Everybody came together. This was a big event. So now you understand, when Mordechai did this, was not a little thing. This was something huge. And they all burst into the palace together. These people generally were never with each other at the same time. They didn't even know each other well. They all came running to tell Esther. Furthermore, as I said, the Yeshav Lekach says, it's very possible Esther didn't believe the girls. She thought they were exaggerating. She heard it from the eunuchs. He said, no, 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 it's true. It's true what he said. This has really happened. So when, when Esther hears about all this, 
She became very distressed. On the simplest level, the Yesha Elikim says, I'll tell you why she became very distressed. Because she knew, nobody knew how crazy Achashverosh was better than her. She lived with this nut, right? They knew that he beheaded Vashti. She knew that he could behead anybody at the blink of an eye. And if you come into the palace, Bilavush Sok, wearing this kind of burlap cloth, you are saying the king is dead. That's what it means. Achashverosh could hear that somebody is loitering around the palace compound, he'll be dead on the spot. So basically, Esther hears that Mordechai may have cracked up or lost it or something happened, but his life is in danger. And, 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 and she, it's, that's what tore apart. Remember, Esther is an orphan. She has nobody in the world. She doesn't get love and attention from Achashverosh. She gets she abused by Achashverosh. The only person who loves her and cares about her in the whole world is Mordechai. And now Mordechai is going to be killed. In fact, who knows? They may already have arrested him. And you don't get a trial in Persia. Not much has changed. Your head is off. So she became very, very worried. The Yeshua Likim says, there's also a much deeper message going on over here. Esther knew Mordechai far too well. He didn't crack up. She knew that something happened. She knew that Mordechai's behavior is choreographed. She knew that if Mordechai is doing something like this, it's very calculated. It's exactly when to come, why to come. He didn't just walk around with torn clothes. He wasn't just wearing sacks. So if he did this, she knew there has to be a reason. So why about this There's a reason. Something happened. There's a problem. So Esther knew from Mordechai that Mordechai is not a person who gets stressed out and loses it. Not only doesn't get stressed out and doesn't lose it, but actually she knew that the truly righteous, the truly righteous are always in control and they don't, they don't freak out when things go wrong. Because if something does go wrong, real tzaddikim are makabel yasurim be'ahava. Things go wrong, have yasurim, they accept it from Hashem with love. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. To be makabel yasurim be'ahava, it's very, very high madrega, very lofty level. Most of us get crazy. We flip out. And the worse the challenge, the worse the pain, the worse the suffering, the angrier or the crazier we get. It's Mordechai. You're talking here of the caliber of a person of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He doesn't lose himself. No such thing. And she knew from the sages, this is not the way the sages are. We find even, the Amaloya says, Rebbe Lezer, Rebbe Shimon used to invite suffering. Not only he wasn't afraid of suffering, he invited suffering. He said, no problem, bring on the Yisurim. I'm ready to whatever Hashem has in mind for me. So because of this, because of this, what did us to understand? This is not a little detail. This must be something of titanic proportion. Mamloya says, we have an interesting Gemara in which Hillel says, it's what a brachas. Hillel said, if you would hear a curl tzavacha ba'ir, you would hear yelling and screaming in the city, he says, I know it's not my family. How do you know? How could you know? So some of Farshim say, because he was so righteous, he knew Hashem would protect his family. But the problem with that theory is just it's not necessarily the case. There are many righteous people who suffer terribly, and we have no way of explaining that. So how could Hill be sure? He says, I'm 100% sure it can't be me. How do you know? 
So the Mamaloya says the, the real the real proper shot is that Hill had trained his family that if something went wrong, they would not yell and scream. Hill had trained even his family. If a tzara comes, you don't start screaming. You don't start yelling. So what do you do? You pray quietly. And this silent act of devotion also then becomes an act of trust. So therefore, if Mordechai is yelling, and he is screaming, there's got to be a reason. She knows something very big. Maybe even something historically unprecedented is about to unfold. She was right. Something very big was happening. But Esther was so intuitive, so smart, so wise, so discerning, so understanding, that in a moment she processed all this information. And having the sensitivity of a woman, she melted down. She actually, her, her, her concern was so great, she actually went into labor as a result of it. This tells you a little something about Esther. We don't know that much about Esther. It tells you a little something about her. It tells something about her ability to understand, to interpret a situation in haste, and also of her emotional sensitivity, how connected she was. So what happens then? So Esther immediately sends clothes. She knows that it's not a problem. It's not like Mordechai lacks wardrobes. She used to do Mordechai's laundry. She knows he has clothes in the house. If the clothes get torn, put on a new set of clothes. She understands what's going on here. She says, torn clothes are a sign of mourning. This is avilut. Sackcloth is a sign of mourning. Even in Persian popular culture was a sign of mourning those days. She knew this. So, and clearly, Mordechai didn't send her any text messages. Because right? he was afraid to send an email because then the email would have to get deleted. <laughs> and then there would be problems. I'm only saying that tongue-in-cheek halfway. I'm, I'm, I'm actually serious. There are people till, till today, or I shouldn't say till, there are especially people today who don't send emails anymore. Because emails can be very damning. And erasing them can be even worse. That's what everybody's talking about these days. Right? A secretary of state erased all her emails. Thousands of emails. And some of them have come out now. Oh, yeah, they're incriminating. So if Mordechai is going to somehow go and send a message to Esther, who else is going to hear about this message? Everybody's going to hear about it. It's not good. Mordechai needs to talk to Esther personally. So Esther says, I get it. So get dressed. We'll find a quiet place to talk. She sends him clothes. What is, what's Mordechai's response? She sends the clothes to Mordechai. Nothing doing, he says. I will not be changing my clothes. So now Esther's worst fears are confirmed. There is a problem, a massive problem. It's so bad, Mordechai won't even change his clothes. And for heaven's sake, she needs to find out what's going on. Maybe there's a role to play. She, she needs to know. Clearly Mordechai wanted her to know so he need, she needs to find out what this is now. This is a big deal. So why doesn't he take the clothes? Why doesn't he take the clothes? Well, there's, there's a number of different reasons of why he wouldn't take the clothes. Some say that Mordechai did not want Esther to be casual about this. And therefore, Mordechai wanted her to understand how serious it is. She sends clothes. No, I'm not taking the clothes. That's part of the message. 
That's part of how serious, because he has to get Esther very, very psyched up for what he's about to tell her. She's going to have to do something very difficult, not only materially, but also spiritually. And, and, and she needs to understand how serious a situation this is. Another, another idea is that Mordechai had made an oath that he would not take off the clothes of sackcloth and ashes. I quote him, I'm lawyers now, until Hashem will perform a miracle. Mordechai is not the first one to wear sackcloth and ashes. Even the city of Nineveh, which is much, much earlier, they wore sackcloth. They understood that this, this was an act of deprivation that essentially guided a person towards tshuva. Mordechai said, I will not stop my tshuva for a second. Or as, or as the, the beauty Hagra puts it, he says that the reason that he wouldn't take off the clothes is because he did not want to separate from his state of doing tshuva. The Malbum adds an interesting twist. He says, if Mordechai takes off the sackcloth, which is an act of devotion and contrition to Hashem, and he goes to speak to Esther, it looks like Mordechai is saying, I need to do tshuva and get Hashem's bracha, and I need human intervention too. Mordechai says no. If, if it means taking off the sackcloth, which is symbolic of his devotion, it's emblematic of his contrition, his tshuva, and he'll take that off, and then he'll go speak to Esther, it's as if tshuva is a part of this, but it plays a role, not the role. Mordechai says no, it plays all the roles. Some even suggest, the, 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 the Divri Esther says, that this was an act of mourning. Mordechai was in mourning now. So it was Shloshim, he can't stop the mourning. He can't say, okay, we'll take, off, take a day off in the morning today. So if Mordechai was doing this as an act of mourning, he was halachically proscribed from taking off the clothes. All right? So now we know he cannot take off the clothes. Nothing to talk about. That is absolutely correct. But at the same time, but at the same time, he knows that certain things have to be done. So while he's putting full trust in Hashem, yeah. he's still pressing the buttons that have to be uh, touched now. The, the Alshech puts it so, so, so beautifully. He says that Mordechai, Hechzik, Libam, Betshuva, Mordechai, and then gripped the hearts of all the Jewish people with a wave of tshuva. Because he did this unbelievable thing. He, he shook them up. He terrified them. He had them all trembling because the way he was, what he was wearing and how he was acting. And that's exactly why he wouldn't take it from Esther. Because what would the rest of the Jewish people say? Oh, Mordechai was afraid. Phew, he's taking off the clothes. He's going to talk to the queen. Okay, it's over. The storm has passed. We can calm down now. That was the last thing Mordechai wanted. He knew that it wasn't what he would say, but rather what he was doing that would be most effective. So if he's just going to say, keep davening, but in fact, his actions demonstrate that he's calm, everything's going to be fine, then the people will stop to be intensely engaged in their tshuva. The spiritual frenzy will, will, will begin to, to die out. That's not a good thing. Mordechai wants to keep that spiritual frenzy alive. He wants them to become, he wants to become uber-devoted, super-inspired. So for all these reasons, he's not going to take off the clothes. There's always somebody watching, see, especially if you're Mordechai. Always somebody watching. The sensitivity of how somebody will interpret an act of Mordechai. We saw this with the Rebbe sometimes. The Rebbe said certain things, did certain things where, where he said, what will so-and-so say? He was always so sensitive to how it would be interpreted. 
not only the act itself, but when you're in that position, everything is so exact, so precise. Okay, so if you were Esther, what would you do now? You really need to find out what's going on. But here's the problem. Your emails will be monitored. Your cell phone is checked. How are you going to get a private message? But it can't be face-to-face because Esther doesn't leave the palace. Every, every, every move of hers is choreographed. Her schedule is published on, on her website every single day. Every five minutes there's a new post on Facebook, what Esther just did yesterday. She can't send a message. How she send a message? She has to find somebody to trust. The only way out of this is to get somebody to trust. And so we are now introduced to Esther's trustworthy figure. Who is the person that Esther could be certain of? Remember, she's playing with her life over here. They can be, and she knows that if she just sends another maiden or another chamberlain or eunuch, Mordechai is not going to respond. So she has to find somebody that Mordechai is going to trust, that she can trust, and last but not least, somebody who's not going to kick up a firestorm of rumors. It's got to be somebody who doesn't look strange that either he's talking to Mordechai or he's talking to Esther. This job description is very difficult to fill. You have to find super trustworthy, somebody that Mordechai knows and trusts too, somebody who won't look bad in other people's eyes, and somebody who will be seen talking to Mordechai and nobody will start to whisper. Where do you find a person like that? Esther calls Hasach. Who is Hasach? He's one of the king's chamberlains. He's not a eunuch. He's one of the king's chamberlains. The queen's chamberlains had to be eunuchs. The king's chamberlains were still had, you know, they could keep all their infrastructure. <laughs> so she got one of the king's chamberlains, but this is already suspicious. Why is she speaking to one of the king's chamberlains? You're dealing with a guy who could fly into a rage with jealousy? He's having a private conversation with, a, with another man? Oh, the king placed him in the welcome center. She wasn't, he wasn't in the living quarters, but he was in, when you walked in to the queen's compound, he was there in the front. He was the front office. So he didn't be concerned. He had no access to the private living quarters. He didn't have to be a eunuch. He was still one of the king's detail. But nonetheless, he had some kind of connection to the queen. All right, so this is pretty good. We have this guy. Now the problem is, can we trust him? We know that he's... Got his marbles together. We know he's he's still he's a, he's a normal guy. He's Misari Sehamelech. Okay, this is good. So it's not going to look bad. As he's one of the king's chamberlains. Why wouldn't the king's chamberlains not, not speak to Mordechai? That's Mordechai is a parliamentarian. He's a senator. So it's perfectly normal for one of the king's chamberlains to speak to the parliament. Nobody's going to whisper in that. Otherwise, they'd be whispering uh, every second. It's just a simple act of you know regular people who are involved in the highest level of government having a coffee together. Okay, that's fine. And Esther is going to be able to talk to him without in, in invoking any kind of suspicion or rumor because he actually sits. His office is right at the Queen's Palace. And the question is, can we trust this guy? So clearly Esther did trust him. Luckily, Baruch Hashem, everything came together. That that person who happened to have all these other qualities for the job description but may have been lacking the most basic and necessary quality, which is trust, Esther could trust him. How does she know? So the Megillah says, She instructed him about Mordechai. 
And she instructed him, Ladas Maza Vial Maza. So first of all, what does it mean she instructed him? What did she tell him? What's like what did you say? Vatikra Esther. She sent him to Mordechai. What's the tetzaveh? What did she command him? Number one. Number two, she sent him Ladas Maza Vial Maza. Sounds redundant to you? What is this and what and, and why is it? The scripture doesn't use extra words. Both are certainly not necessary, and it's quite possible that even none, none is necessary. There would be a simpler way to say this. All right. So, the first thing we have to know is who Asach is. The Megillah does introduce us to him by giving us a name. We don't know who the Sheva and Arisa are. We don't know what the names are. There's a Medrash that they had names of the week. We don't know. We don't know who the eunuchs are. Why not? Because it's not relevant. But Hasach's name is relevant. Now we hear who Hasach is, we even hear his position. But we still don't know who he is. So who did that help? Hasach. Was he somebody's son? Was somebody's brother? Have we seen him before? How are we supposed to know what somebody is? Is it so-and-so who has this position? How is that supposed to have meaning for us thousands of years later? Says the Gemara, Hasach. This is the prophet Daniel. Ah, why is he named Hasachtan? They gave him a nom de gur, they gave him a, a, a name. The Gemara asked the same question. Why is his name Hasach? If he's Daniel, he's Daniel. So the Gemara says there are two reasons that are given, which means both reasons are true. And the question was, what's the primary reason? We have the famous protagonist, Rav and Shmuel, discussing this. The Gemara Megillah and Daftazvav. Rav says, Shechatchuhu Megdulasai. That the word Hasach is a permutation of cut. What does it mean, cut? It means that his responsibilities were truncated. So when somebody gets fired, what's the typical word to use? What do people say? They got cut. They cut him off. When somebody, when somebody has a, g- a good account and he loses the account, what do they say? They cut him off. Yeah. So to here, he's called Asach. Why is he called Asach? He's called Asach because basically he was cut off. His responsibilities were taken away from him. So what? Why do I care if, if Daniel's responsibilities were taken away from him and that became his name, that became his defining is the defining character. That the man who was in charge of the queen's palace was the demoted guy. And not only you should know he was demoted, he was nicknamed Mr. Truncated. They called him Cut. Cut off. So the Mamloya says a Gavaldical thing. My dear Hakosov, the Pasuk is coming to tell you who is Achashvedesh, Sugezund, the wickedness, the depth of his moral, ethical, and spiritual depravity. Daniel is called Ishchamudis, the most precious of people. He was a tzaddik in the most extraordinary way. The Gemara even says he was an example of what the Mashiach would look like. Daniel Ishchamudis. So Daniel Ishchamudis was such a, 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 a beloved person. He was beloved to everybody. So everybody loved him. He was a nice person. He was a compassionate person. Not just Jews. Everybody's called Ishamudes. They call them in Hebrew. People say Ah Hamud. Hamud was Mi Hamud. 
Ach, like saying Yiddish, like a Ziskite, you know, like a, it's a sweet person. He was actually the prime minister. So a Jew that everybody liked, and it rose very high. Ahasuerus demoted him, put him into the queen's palace. He's like, you be the queen's secretary. Think of it. Think, just, just try to think of it. Imagine that we, what would be a, if, the, if this would be a, a, a dictatorship, a monarchy. Imagine a person, Stephen Harper was the prime minister, and now he is, uh, I forgot her name, that Brain. brainless, whatever. No, the, uh, Trudeau's wife, what's her name? Gre Gregory? Sophie. Sophie, the singer, yeah. You're going to be now her press secretary. <laughs> the embarrassment? I would, I, would, I would think so. It would be, it would be, it would be a, a sign of who, what kind of, what kind of king does that? So what happened over here is that Ahasuerus took a man who was in the highest level of government, and the speaker of the house, I don't know what, whatever, and he made him into a very demoted, into a low position, being the social director of the queen. And instead, he appointed Haman, who was a vicious, savage person that everybody hated. Is he giving now a little window into Akashverosh? So now we see why he's called Hasach. Because just by calling him a certain name, the Megillah already told us a heck of a lot about Akashverosh. You see how powerful the Megillah is, like every word is? Like how do you translate that into English? And his name was Hatach. Okay, his name was Hatach. So what? But when you know Hebrew, and you know how to look at a word, and you know the etymology of the word, it's Hasach. The Gemara says, why is it called Asach? There's a message here. Something's being broadcast. Oh, something's being broadcast. Now we know what kind of depraved man Achashverosh was. But of course, nothing's by happenstance. This is all choreographed. He's Taka Mushchis. He's a, a depraved soul. And he does what he does because he's Achashverosh. But Hashem arranged it that this Daniel Shamudis should be demoted from his position, appointed to a position in the Queen's palace, so at this moment of need, when Esther is looking for somebody she could trust, who does she have? Daniel is Hamudais. What kind of question? Daniel, but of course. She never thought of it before. She never used Daniel's services before to have him as a go-between between him and Mordechai. But now in this moment of need, ah. And also, this tells you something incredible about Esther. She just had a miscarriage. And what's she thinking? She's thinking how she could help the Jewish people. The al says, what's her mind on? Imagine a woman has a miscarriage. From her husband, she ain't going to get no sympathy. Something, somebody tell her, send Mordechai a message, you know what just happened to me? You know, you know how worried I, you know how distressed you made me? No. She's thinking about there's a problem for the Yidin. Klai Yisrael needs me. And in the midst of her pain, she's thinking of who she could trust and she calls Hasachin and she says, okay, listen, we have a real problem here. Such and such and such is going on. I know it's a disaster. I know my kishkas are coming out. You need to help me now. Wow. Tells you who Esther is too. So now that we know who Asach is, now we understand, now we understand why Esther is able to trust him. But furthermore, not only is Esther able to trust him, something else beautiful happens over here. He is able to talk to Mordechai without creating any rumors. As we're going to see in the next Pasuk, Vayetzeh Asach El Mordechai El Rechov he goes out to Mordechai, he goes out to the, the streets. Which is an obvious question. Why do you have to go out to the Mordechai and go out to the streets? He went into the Mordechai. And he went into which streets? The most popular streets. He went onto Bloor Street. <laughs> Why did he go on the popular street? 
The street right in front of the royal compound. In front of the royal gates. The answer is very simple. The Mamalaya says, if Hasach is suddenly going to have a private meeting with the rabbi, you don't think somebody's going to see? The walls of ice. You don't think somebody's going to listen and eavesdrop? So therefore, Mordechai knows that can't be done. More importantly, Hasach knows it can't be done. Hasach is so sharp. He figures out what's going on. He's Daniel. That's exactly what's going on. He realizes what this is. He probably knew about the decree already. Esther was in the palace, the Mepharshim say, called Kvuda Bas Melech Pnima, sheltered life, a queen. She didn't know what was going on in the street. She didn't have Facebook. She didn't, wasn't involved in the... She didn't hear all the gossip. But Daniel was a press secretary. He's sitting in the front. He for sure knew. And now he realizes, he puts two and two together. He says, Esther, she acts funny. She looks different. I bet you she's Jewish. I bet you. I know there's some kind of... Ah, I know what's going on here now. And Esther probably told Hasach, Vatetzavehu. She said, listen, what's going on here? Mordechai is my uncle. I didn't tell anybody. I'm Jewish. There's a major problem going on. So now Hasach knows this. So he has to... He, what does he do? Mamalaya says, think. But how did he go out to Mordechai? He went for a walk. Royal Chamberlain, Queen's Press Secretary, whatever, Chief of Staff, went for a walk. Went for a walk, and he bumps into his good friend Mordechai. And he sees his clothes are torn. He's looking disheveled. And he says, Good day, Sir Mordechai. And Mordechai says, Oy vey, You think it's a good day? And they start having a conversation. Now, when you're in a, in a cloistered or cl- private place, will you ever know if somebody's listening into the conversation? Think about it. You would say, of course. I would say, of course not. Because if you're in a private place, you never know. You never know who's got a stethoscope to the wall, so to speak. You never know who could have left a bug. You never know. What's the best way to have a private conversation? Where's the best place in the world to have a private conversation? In public. In public. Because in public, you could see if somebody's standing and looking like this, Hmm. And like with his ears like this, you know, you don't have to say, you just walk away. It's the best place. So Hasak goes out to the street. Not stam into the street. He doesn't go into a little cafe and sit in a corner. The main street. Main street. What's people gonna say? <gasps> rumor, rumor, rumor mill. What's rumor mill? You saw Hasak was talking to Mordechai. It's not a rumor. Nobody even stopped to look. Of course, Hasak talks to Mordechai. That's that's normal. Of course, it's not a story. They bumped in. Why they were not sure? Why should not speak to him? Spoke to him yesterday. Spoke to him last week. Spoke to him last month. Hello, hello. And they start talking. And this way, as we'll see in the next verse, Yagidloi. Mordechai tells him what's going on. How cool is that? See how it's all fitting together. Well, let's go back to pasuk hey. Let's have a better understanding of pasuk hey. Because this is really, really profound. Esther is so sharp; she knows exactly what's going on, and and therefore she says. She sends a message. She calls Hasach and she says, listen, there's something majorly going on with the Jewish people. Mordechai would not have a meltdown. And certainly, he would not have a meltdown if something was bad with him. It's not him. It's Klal Yisrael. The Jewish people are in deep trouble. He won't even take the sack off. He won't even come speak to me. That's how bad it is. So you really need to find out what this is. Now we know it means she commanded him. That's the meaning of Tetzaveyo. She understands, you better find out how bad could it be that he won't even take that off for one second. 
Al-Sheikh explains this so beautifully. He, says, he explains how nobody will be suspicious. It's not even one of her private chamberlains. It's one of the king's chamberlains. If she called her private people, okay. Nobody knows it's Daniel. Nobody puts, nobody knows she's Jewish. Nobody puts two and two together, right? So she calls him in and says, you'll go there and you'll speak to him and nobody will have any suspicions. This will be suspectful at all. And, and, and says there's two things going on over here. Asha says two things. He says, number one, number one, he won't be suspected. Number two, he's the only one to be trusted. That's the, that's the Tetzaveu. She called in 007 here. Okay? <laughs> This is the highest level of secrecy. And she says, you need to go, you need to tell him, you need to, you, you need to get this, this whole business straight. Now, what is, what is, what is the tetzaveyu? We now know that the words are not simple. There's something, there's a message here. Ladas, maze vi almaze. What's maze? Maze vi almaze. What is it? What does it mean? I know what it means. What is it? What's the whole about? That's like a very like roundabout way. And the Megillah is telling it all this. So the Medr Shabbat says, she said to Hasach, go and tell Mordechai, from the days of our earliest history, never has there been such a decree. She started to put the pieces together. Esther must have started asking around already. In fact, there's a very, very big chance that at this point, Esther already knew what was going on. Because the whole city knew. She was living a cloistered life. But now, she was woken up to the fact. She must have known. So if she knows... And she, she says to, to, to uh, Hasach, ask Mordechai to explain what's going on. What's, what, what happened? How low did my people sink? She says, Shema Kafru Yisrael Bezekeli Van Veu? Did they deny the idea that this is our God and we'll glorify Him? That's Ladas Ze. What's Ze? Ze Keli Van Veu. That's when that word shows up in the scripture. When the Jewish people come to the Reed Sea and they express faith in Hashem, they said, Az Yashem Moshe of Moshe leads the man, Miriam leads the woman, and the words they say is, Ze Keli Van Veyu. This is my God, and I will glorify him. So she says, Ladas Mazeh. Was it Ze Keli Van Veyu that they abandoned? And furthermore, says the, the Medeshaba, maybe it's even worse. Maybe it's mize umize. What's mize umize? Ah, mize umize is the luchot. The luchot it says, aktuvim mishnei evorehem mize umize him ktuvim. The luchot like a hologram. It's miraculous. You read it this way, anoicheshem lekecha. Turn it this way, anoicheshem lekecha. Turn it this way, anoicheshem lekecha. Mize umize. Any side you looked at the luchas, you saw the same thing. So Mizeo Mizez, that they abandoned Zekeli Van Veu, have they violated all of the Aserat Dibrut? In other words, have they, they stopped observing even basic Judaism? So I knew it was assimilation. I knew there was problems. How bad is it? Now, to me it was really interesting that we have the Pasuk of Zekeli Van Veu. Why have all Pasuk? If you ask somebody what's like the most important Pasuk, which Pasuk, which verse in the Torah encapsulates the Jewish faith in a way more profound than any other, very few people would say, ah, Zekeli Van Veu. So why? What's with the Zekeli Van Veil? So first of all, the Sepharno says on the Pasuk Zekeli Van Veil that this is the idea of God's eternity. He says, Hashem is Nitzchi and a Kadmain. 
And maybe then what Esther was saying is, maybe they think that God's, you know, was but isn't. They're denying the eternity of God. That would be pretty serious. Now, if you remember, we learned two classes ago as to why the Jewish people deserve Kloya. So it's because they would no longer put their faith in Hashem. That would fit right along with the way the Sepharno explains. Furthermore, furthermore, the Rajbam says that the word Zeh, Zeh means this. This usually is this. When you can point the finger, this. So it says when the Jewish children walked through the Reed Sea, they said Zekeli, they could see God. What does that mean though? All the people saw God. So Rajbam says, it doesn't mean you have to actually see God. It's as if you see God. Somebody who asked me, does I see God in my life? A question? Of course I see God. Really? What color is he? I don't see it like that. It's clear to me. The whole message of the Megillah is that when even when we don't see God, we have to see God. He's always there. You just have to see it. Put the dots together. Have the Jewish people denied this? Have they forgotten that God is always with them? It's the Zeh. Rashbam says Zeh is not literal, it's figurative. Have they violated Zeh Keli Van Veu? Ramban says that Zeh Keli Van Veu means that even in the most difficult times of Mitzrayim, Hashem still had mercy for the Jewish people. He said, especially when the Makot, Hashem was merciful to the Jewish people and judgmental to the Mitzrayim which is impossible for one human being to be in two places at the same time, this is a divine attribute. So, maybe they deny that. They say, well, if God's with us, why are we in Golos? Either we're being punished, or we're being embraced. But that's basic Jewish theology. Are they denying this? And here's something really interesting, and I don't know if this is correct, but I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. Uncle says that the word va'anvehu is also to be understood, I will build him a home. I will build him a base on Migdash. Zekele Vaveu refers to Vasuli Migdash. The Jewish people started to build a second base on Migdash. Akashverosh interrupted the building of the second base on Migdash. Maybe they gave up on the base on Migdash. And if they gave up on ever rebuilding the base on Migdash, we never we give up. We say our davening. How many times a day? Sheyibana base on Migdash. Maybe they stopped saying Sheyibana base on Migdash. Maybe they no longer care about Eretz Yisrael. Uh oh. They no longer care about Israel. They, for, they forgot Jerusalem. They never get forgotten. I didn't see this. I'm just thinking. Maybe I'm wrong, but that seems to me maybe this, be, maybe this is what Esther meant. The beautiful teaching in Chassidus on that Pasuk that says, The God of my father, the God of my previous generations, it's, rum. It's, it's like lofty. But it has to be Zekeli. I have to take possession of my Judaism. I can't just be in, in possession of an ancient faith, an ancient tradition, an ancient... This is what the Zaydi used to say. Van Vehu! I have to glorify him. Esther said, did they abandon? Are they just talking now about Jewish history? Did they give up the idea of, you have to live Jewishly? Jewish continuity means Torah mitzvahs, here and now. Did they give that up? That's the Mizeh Mizeh. And Esther's almost saying, uh-oh, maybe this is the reason this is all going on. Maybe, maybe now I know what's happening over here. So that's the message that she sends. That's what means the tetzavehu. That's what means she commanded Hasach. Go and find out what really happened. So what happened? Hasach went out there 
And he spoke to Mordechai. And the contents of that conversation will be the focus of next week's class.